0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to the Women's Sanctuary, the podcast about tending the soul of women, sisterhood, and the rise of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Arlia Hall. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the Women's Sanctuary. A sanctuary is a safe, holy space where we gather. In this space, we come to hear women's stories of transformation and living their purpose in the world. We also cover topics of soul care and aligned living. Welcome to Sanctuary, sisters. Today, I am thrilled to have my friend and author Sharna Fabiano with us. Sharna, is an internationally recognized tango artist, certified coach and author of lead and follow the dance of inspired teamwork. She brings a deep understanding of the leader follower dynamic from social dance into the professional sphere to help individuals and teams collaborate more successfully. Over the course of her 20 year tango career, she produced dozens of workshops and retreats for women to study the leading role and was a member of the Tango Mujer, the world's first all all-wom- all woman tango
1: company. Welcome, Sharna. Thank you, Arlia. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I am thrilled to have you. I told you before we went on the air that I'm so excited about this book. I could just, I would just, if I could, I would just read the whole thing aloud for people to hear. So I guess if you want to, if you ever want to do an audio book, you may (laughs) be, just consider me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thrilled about this. Um, I was based, um, on our mutual friend, Virginia Dick. I was um, privileged enough to be one, one of your, um, participants in your study groups before the book was launched, launched, it was published. And now here it is, it has been birthed into the world, and I'm thrilled to see it. How does it feel?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I mean, maybe everyone who publishes a book feels this way, but it it feels a little bit surreal. Mm-hmm. You know, that all those years of editing and revising and changing, and now it's it looks so small to me, right? It's <laughs> a small rectangle, this little stack of paper. Yeah. But um, it's sweet. It's a sweet feeling. Thank you. Yeah.
0: How did you get from tango to a book on leadership and followership?
1: Well, I think one thing that's really interesting and beautiful about tango is, is that it does place these two roles next to each other in, in an equal relationship, right? Rather than a hierarchical relationship. And so... My path to this material comes from a very embodied place. I, you know, I entered the tango world in the late nineties and I first I was a follower because I was I'm a woman and still in dance, you know, it's changing a little, but most men lead most women to follow. And so I was a follower and I had, you know, I, I have a very positive association with that role. Um, unlike you know many in the business world or even you know generally in our culture, following is thought of as undesirable. But for me, following was beautiful. You know, it's a very technical role. It's very expressive. It um, it's very versatile. And so I was happy to kind of live in that role. And then I was very fortunate to have some early teachers who encouraged me to learn to lead as well. And so before you know, I'm, I'm still 22 at this point, before I go to graduate school, before I become a coach, like way before any of that, I have this very physical and very relational experience with both being a follower and, and being a leader. And so I, I kind of carry that with me, you know, in my whole system for years and years. And in, I think it was in 2008, I met Someone in a tango class. He just his name is Irit Shalif, and he became my mentor for this book. He walked into a tango class, and I had no idea who he was. But at the end of the class, he introduced himself as the author of *The Courageous Follower*, mm. a marvelous book. And he told me all about his work, which was teaching courageous following in the nonprofit world, in the government world, and you know he's worked with um, political leaders all over the world. So I was fascinated that someone was teaching following, you know, in that context. And he, of course, was also fascinated with how I described the fluidity and the partnership of the two roles. And so we struck up this wonderful friendship, and he was the first one to encourage me to write about followership and about these complementary roles from a dance perspective. Now I didn't do it in 2008, obviously, but that planted the seed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, many years later, I think after going through my graduate program and becoming a coach, I started to see that what I learned in tango so many years ago about this partnership was so valuable. And I really wanted to share it outside the dance community in, in a way that could be understood, practiced, you know, um, absorbed without someone having to go through the process of learning to dance. So that was the purpose I think behind this book. And it feels to me like in many ways, a translation of what I learned in my body into, you know, words and exercises that came more through my, uh, graduate work and coaching training.
0: Mm -hmm. What an incredible process. (laughs) <laughs> uh to to really attempt to translate what's happening in your body and the and then in your larger experience into a cohesive presentation which you have done here, and I think you succeed because it you do take the reader into what it's like to be on the dance floor periodically, even if you're not a dancer, suddenly you are a dancer as you're reading the words, and that's that's extraordinary I mean I have some limited experience with dance, but it was, but I I, I don't feel like it was necessary because suddenly I was dropped into having to relate to this other person and then with my own body and what to do next. It was, it's really incredible. Um, You say in the preface that social dancers value their dance community relationships just as much and sometimes more than their actual dance experiences. This is a surprising yet powerful perspective to take into the work environment where we tend to see relationship building as just another strategy for professional success, not a worthwhile goal in and of itself. And that's pretty profound that, um, first of all, from the dance perspective that, that the community becomes so important but then, I mean, we're beginning to learn that, but I think the business world is in its infancy to recognize and understand the the importance of the foundational piece of relationship.
1: Yeah, I think the more I sat with that awareness right, reflecting on my own dance experience, the more I saw a parallel with mm-hmm. the whole conversation today about sustainability and you know, bring your whole self to work, and what are we doing here at work anyway? Um, and the idea that who we are together really is what we do together. Mm-hmm. I think that's something I feel very much in dance, and also in any kind of work. You know, when I when I had my dance company, I was making performance. It was it was very clear to me that the, the people I asked to work with me—that's that's what determines what the performance is. Much more than, you know, any movement material that might come out of the rehearsal. And I I do believe that's true in in any work environment. It's a bit of a leap of faith, though, you know, to say, like, just focus on the relationship, right? It seems like... utopian or something. And I think what I'm after there is not, you know, not necessarily the either or, mm-hmm. but understanding that, okay, if we're going to work together or if we're going to build software, if we're going to, you know, design a product line, if we're going to make clothing, whatever we're going to do, we have to, as much as we're focusing on the goal, which of course is important, we have to equally much focus on how we're relating with each other. Mm. Yeah. Because that will directly influence what we do every time.
0: So we've touched on this, but can you explain more about how this book differs from all the other books on leadership? I mean, yeah, I mean, we're talking about followership and dance, but what what do you see as its main impact on our body of thinking?
1: I think what happens when you start to really look at the follower role is that it changes how you see the leader. Mm. So when you start to look from the perspective of the people who are following the leader, you just see something you see different things. And so that that's one of the biggest ways that I would say this book is different and that it offers not only a different way of thinking but perhaps a a, a different Set of values almost that to you know to guide action. so if you if you want your followers to be engaged, right, which is something that everyone says now, right? We need employee engagement, we need team engagement, we need team players, we need everyone to be on board. You know mm-hmm. that's just probably the number one thing, right we hear in in the conversation around management and and organizational development but you can't just require that, right? If you look at that from the follower point of view, what's required in order for that to happen? Like what would inspire the follower to be engaged in the first place, you know, and to assume that they have a choice, It's not just something that they do if they're, you know, if the leader does something, there's a formula and automatically you get employee engagement, right? It doesn't work that way. (laughs) So when you acknowledge that the follower is a human being, like the employee is a human being and they have a choice in this and there's no reason for them to choose to engage, you know, um, unless, unless it's giving them something, right? So then you have to ask, all right, then what is the role of the leader in a team, You know, of people who have the option to engage and give themselves or they have the option to not do the bare minimum. And engagement in in the dance system that I've laid out here goes with uh, like a set of connection skills. So if you want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to touch on that because it's Mm -hmm. um, this was like revolutionary for me, these, these pairs of skills. And in the book, you've got engagement goes with inclusion. So what does that look like from a follower's perspective um, of inclusion?
1: I mean, yeah, inclusion. Thank you. Inclusion can mean a lot of things depending on the context. Mm -hmm. But if you imagine yourself sitting in a meeting, right, you, the employee and, you know inclusion can be something like as simple as sitting in a circle right or it can be as simple as everyone in the room checks in and says you know how they're doing what's up mm-hmm. with them but that everyone speaks so in a room like that if you feel included right whether by those strategies or in some other way if the leader looks at you you know directly um if you're you know, input is collected the same as everyone else's. So many ways you can create inclusion. But if you feel included, then you are more likely to want to give, right, and engage. So, uh, and again, this is—I don't want to make it sound like it's a formula or it's like, okay, the leader just has to do a check-in and then they're done, right? All these things are fluid and dynamic, and they have to be customized, right? And they have to be authentic. Yeah. But because if there's, there's a, like a dance. Exactly. Right. You, you can't just do it the same with every person. That's another thing that, you know, from improvised dance comes through very clearly. So if you are feeling included by your leader, that is going to make you want to contribute. Mm-hmm. Right. And then on the other side, if you contribute often, that will make the leader want to include you. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like a back and forth and it's not a formula, but it's it's a, a way of seeing these roles as mutually influential, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. You d- you um,
0: divide the book and in, up into three phases, connection, collaboration, and co-creation. And within each of those phases are um, the following skills and leading skills. And I, I just, I found this, again, I'm going to say the word revolutionary because we've so been taught to focus on the leadership skills, right? If the, if it's a good leader and they're emotionally intelligent and they're smart and they're organized, you know, how can they not fail? And, um, and then we all have the hierarchical system, which, um, I've worked for years in servant leadership, and and it's still a a Sisyphean task to um, convince people that there are benefits to a more egalitarian, collaborative um, process. And so, to have these skills that you have identified as playing off of each other and working hand in hand as the leader and the follower do. Um, it just opened my eyes to the ways that, oh, if this, you know, if the follower is doing this, then this is the leader's responsibility and vice versa. I think the most enlightening one for me was boundaries. I do a lot of work with boundaries, which is a followership skill, but the leader has to set adequate structure and expectations. And there is the stance of then the, the follower creating boundaries so that they are enhancing and maximizing their role within that relationship. It was, it was eye-opening for me.
1: Yeah, that one is really strong for me as well. And I just want to add to make it clear that I think no matter what your position is, right, your work, you should you benefit from practicing both leading and following mm-hmm. it. It really just depends on the context. There's a, a well-known leadership and followership scholar named Barbara Kellerman, and she adds context as part of her uh, model for, you know, choosing when, when do you need leadership? When do you need mm-hmm. followership? Um, and so the context is super important and I use expectations and boundaries because I feel like they are two sides of a coin, mm-hmm. and of course, everyone needs to do both of those things, right, in mm-hmm. different situations. Um, but they tend to be among the more difficult things to express in relationship. Mm. I think
0: I'd say that's true. Yeah, I'd like to give our readers a sense of how you how you approach this. Would you be willing to read a bit from your introduction?
1: Sure, sure, I'd love to. So I wanna just say that the first paragraph I'm gonna read here is a snapshot of the dance floor. So it's written in the second person. uh, And then the second paragraph is the main text of the book. There are approximately 10 feet between your chair and the edge of the dance floor. You are seated at a small cafe table and the tall stranger, the leader, is standing calmly in front of you. Eye contact confirms your silent agreement to become partners for the next set of dances. This moment is sacred, a tiny pocket of time in which you both acknowledge that although you are individuals, you will now come together to play the roles of leader and follower, a creative team, interdependent. You do this because you know that you cannot dance alone, that you need a partner, or many partners, to make the dance happen. The paradox is that in prioritizing the relationship, you discover an unexpected sense of freedom. And you achieve more together than what is possible through individual effort alone. There's something mysterious about each recognizing the need for the other that lifts both partners up and makes social dance greater than the sum of its parts. It's not just mechanical execution, it's synergy. The reciprocal nature of leading and following in social dance offers useful lessons for professional workplace interactions, although the term follower may be less familiar there. At work too, there is power in recognizing that we can lift each other up, that we are each capable of more when we collaborate successfully together. The structure of improvised social dance offers an elegant if unusual framework for designing such collaborations.
0: Beautiful. I know in a lot of these, um, from the dance floor descriptions, which are peppered throughout the book to help you visualize the concepts that you use, um, use the the feminine pronouns all the time, can you speak to that?
1: Sure. I made a decision to do that partly because i I wanted to just disrupt the the assumption like that the leader is always male and the mm-hmm. follower is always female, even in dance, right? That's changing a lot. There are people like me who learn both roles, a lot of women who are learning both roles I would say more than men. And part of that is the numbers. There are just more women in dance in social dance than in, than men. And so they have perhaps an extra incentive to learn both roles so they can dance more. But yeah, I think part of that was just to kind of, you know, interrupt the brain a little bit and make people realize, Oh, you know, I actually, everyone has an inner masculine and inner feminine, you know, we can all be leaders and followers and we benefit from seeing uh, one another that way. <laughs> I
0: love that because it did, it would interrupt my brain. Go, Wait.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, what's, what's your favorite piece of this? So I like trying to pick your favorite child, but um, is there a skill pair that really, Stuck out to you as one that um, you you felt like was closer to your heart, or more important, or maybe more crucial.
1: Yeah, that is trying to pick your um, favorite <laughs> child. It's difficult, Arlia. Um, I don't know. I mean, they really. I I wouldn't. Okay, um, I'll answer it this way. I I don't. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I. Actually, it was hard. I would say this is actually was the hardest. The last part, part three, co-creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two skill pairs there are imagination and bravery and insight and style. Mm-hmm. And those two were the hardest to write because at this stage of the relationship, you know, both in dance and in great teams everywhere, the roles sort of start to dissolve. Right. And that itself is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right. In that we get to this point where. You know, imagine the the dance partnership and they've mastered the vocabulary, they've mastered the technique, they're just moving together fluidly. They themselves sometimes forget, right, like where the where the signals are coming from, who's making the decisions, or when you're in a great team working on a project, you know, you don't remember always who said it first, you just know, yeah, that's it, and you'll just all orient to that, you know, new insight. And it feel you know it feels sort of magical, and I think that's in many ways the goal of any sort of creative enterprise or innovation, you know or progressive business, you know, we're trying to get to that state where we have those epiphanies. and so it was a little harder to write about because it's less task based you know mm-hmm. it's more about letting it happen, letting the roles shift. Um, but as I was writing that, like I realized we can't get there without the other stuff. Mm. Right. So even though that is the goal, you know, we can't just say, okay, we're just going to be creative together. Right. Right. Cause what does that mean? (laughs) So we need the connection, right. Those very careful, like pieces of attention to one another, the openness, right. The inclusivity we need to invest in that. And in fact, continue revisiting that foundational layer of connection. Mm -hmm. And then all the nuts and bolts, we need that we need, you know, our skills, we need our deadlines, you know, we need our boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we have all that, it does lead relatively, I mean, I wouldn't say again, it's not a formula, but it creates the conditions for those innovations to occur. And so I, I loved writing that because because of knowing that, I think, I liked writing those last chapters, knowing that they were the, the organic outcome of all the hard work, you know, that had come before.
0: Well, I think that's probably somewhat reassuring to leaders who'd be like, I can't just say let's all flow with creativity, you know, like it's all going to fall apart if I do that. And, and you're saying it takes all the, the, the hard work, the foundational hard work, to get to that place where it's like all the machinery is in place. The proper machinery is in place. I guess the, the most of humane <laughs> system is in place to allow that, that creativity to happen. And that reminds me, I, I, I experienced the same thing in the work with women. Um, they thrive in that flow, but that flow requires riverbanks as i say it requires the structure in which to flourish um and i think that's a that's a fantastic um gosh i hate to use the word goal but it's a fantastic place to arrive at and operate in is a system that's so well founded that it can it can sustain and and um create opportunities for the flow
1: yeah i see it those you know i see it a scaffolding mm. in a sense right there's the structure as you say that sort of supports this team reaching right the creative potential um but yeah it it doesn't doesn't just happen by magic and in fact the in dance and i would say you know to some extent this is true and you know, in the workplace. And perhaps that's why following has been invisible for so long or unacknowledged is the, the training of the dancer who's following is actually to make it look effortless. Mm. Is all that technical training, you know, the balance, the stability, the fast movements, the controlled movements, it serves in order to enable the vision, right, to, to emerge, right, to enable the the leading partner in the case of dance to improvise freely. So, but yeah, there, there's a lot of hard work there, but in, in some ways it's, it's harder to see it when you're at the moment of creation, you're just enjoying the the success of it. But then you realize, Oh, that's actually, you know, we need to acknowledge all the pieces that happened before to get there.
0: Yeah. It occurs to me. It's not that the process is magic, but the result is. Mm. Yeah beautifully said yeah Um, i'm going to throw you a curveball how how do you see or how have you experienced the pandemic affecting this work or how people receive it or work with it our work environment has changed dramatically
1: The topic that has come up the most for me is the connection piece, which probably won't surprise you, right? As we're all sitting at home on our, in front of our Zoom screens. So I've been leaning into that section a lot and asking myself, okay, if we're not physically together, right? Because physical presence is so powerful. How do we still commit ourselves to to those important foundational building blocks of connection. And I don't think it always means like a zoom happy hour, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that can be fatiguing. So what are, what are creative ways we can stay connected uh, without just being on screen? That's yeah, that, that seems to be where the emphasis is now. And, you know, it's, it's like one of these paradoxes again, like no one would have wished this on anyone, but Now that we're forced to confront it, it's made it obvious how important that foundation is. Mm
0: -hmm. And how critically important physical connection is when it's available. Yes. Yeah. What's next
1: for you, Sharna? (laughs) Well, I am looking forward to the study group for this book. I'm holding three sessions over the next three months to chat with people about each of those three sections in the, uh, the curriculum, the connection, collaboration, and co-creation. Um, those are the last Sundays of every month, March, April, May. So I'm, I'm really curious what people have to say for those. We're going to do some Activities. It's all remote, of course. Um, Is that open to?
0: Are you opening that invitation? Yes, these are
1: public. They're free. Okay. Uh, anyone can attend. They just sign up on my website, and there'll be Sun the last Sundays of March, April, May, four PM Pacific, so seven PM Eastern. Yeah, there'll be kind of part Q and A, part discussion part guided activity around those three themes. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, that's exciting. Um, We will definitely put that information in the show notes. Um, How can people reach out to you? How can they find the book and connect with you?
1: The book is available everywhere. You can search for your local bookstore on IndieBound, which is my favorite way to order books, IndieBound.com. You can also order it on Amazon. It's an ebook. I think right now the ebook is still on sale on uh, Amazon Kindle. So if you're an ebook reader, you can download that. And yeah, sharnafabiano.com is, I keep it pretty current. So any new study groups or uh, classes related to the book will be there.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I, um, this is a beautiful book with a lot of rich wisdom and insight and practical skills that are, I found to be refreshing, like not, you know, just they made my brain work in a new way and that, that was exciting. Thank you so, so much. I'm so I am, happy to hear that. thrilled to um, absorb this again and also, you know, share it with my clients, share it with my colleagues. and
1: Thank I, you so much, Arlia.
0: I wish it's uh, all, all the best out there in the world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks. Me too. Me too. Now is like the next, uh, what would they say that it now it takes on a life of its own? That's, right. That's
0: <laughs> right. Thank you, Sharna, for joining us. You're so welcome. Join us next time to hear more women sharing their stories. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast provider. It helps people find us, and it helps our guests like Sharna Fabiano. I'm Arlia Hoffman, and this has been The Women's Sanctuary. We'll see you next time.